to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Well, welcome back to the Logically Faithful podcast. Now we are continuing our interview with Jim Wallace. I hope you'll tune in and I look forward to getting your feedback on the iTunes website. You're welcome to sign up at the logicallyfaithful.com uh, where you'll receive a free ebook on the blind spots of science, 10 things we cannot prove with science alone. I look forward to getting your feedback and look forward to hearing from you. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. So at the end and of the day, to, yeah. okay, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, I have right. to make a decision. I have to either jump into this light or this darkness to, uh, based on the evidence that I have, I have to make a decision. Right. I can't That's just right. stand there. And by the way, just standing there saying I won't make a decision is itself a form of a decision, is it not? That's right. Uh, exactly. That's why we don't want jurors. We don't want jurors who will hang the jury because they won't make a decision. Right. And so, so yeah, we're, we are trying to, to also uh, do the same thing with jury selection. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I can evaluate the evidence, and I have to, from there, make a a reasonable position, a reasonable choice of whether I'm going to go with this, and that's based on some kind of trust and the authority of the uh, the witness and the authority of the evidence, um, and of course a form of faith that I have to move forward. And I know that's the case with with my wife and I. Um, I'm sure you can attest to that. We, we, I made an, a, a, a decision based on her past experience, who she was, what her, her dispositions, her character, her family, and then based on this information and then the way I interacted with her to marry her. But there's no way I would have known with absolute certainty what kind of person she would be in 5, 10, 15 years. I have to take that step of uncertainty, that step of trust to move forward. Uh, isn't that where we... Um, that's where it gets kind of tricky. Let's, um, yeah, I think it's our definition of faith, right? I mean, right, right. I think there's two ways. There's three ways to hold a belief relative to evidence, if you ask me. Hmm. One is that you hold a belief for which there is evidence to the contrary, but you don't care. You've seen the evidence to the contrary, and there's no evidence that even supports your position, but you don't care. If you believe that you get warts from frogs, okay, well, guess what? We we have evidence of where you get warts from. It's not from frogs. There is no evidence you get warts from frogs. Oh, but if you continue to believe that. You are now believing what I call something that's given an unreasonable belief. Mm. But there's a second kind of belief, which is just a blind belief. Mm. When you can blindly believe something that's true or blindly believe something that's false, you just don't know. You've never examined the evidence. I believe my dad, Jim Wallace, is my dad. Mm. But I've never had a DNA test or a paternity test done to, to prove that. He may not even be my biological dad. But I, so I believe something. It happens to be true, I think. But I believe it blindly in the sense that I don't have physical determinative evidence that could demonstrate that yes, he is, but paternally, he has my DNA, he's my dad. Great. 
uh, then there's a third kind of faith, which is the faith that you believe in something because of the evidence. You've got good evidence, but now you still have open questions, because that's every case. There's still some gap you have to jump, because that's just the nature of every case. But you've got evidence that points you in this direction, and then you decide to take a step of active trust in that direction. That's what I've called a forensic faith. So you have unreasonable faith, blind faith, or forensic faith, a faith that is grounded in something you know you can demonstrate is true, even though... It's going to be short. Every one of us believes a worldview for which we have less than perfect evidence. Give There's me one. nobody I'm sorry. who believes a worldview for which they have every possible piece of evidence they need to make the case. Nobody, yeah, nobody does, of course. Uh, although some of us think we do. Right. <laughs> Let's take one strand of that, just one. Let's take, for example, the most important book in all of Western history. I'll say history itself, the, uh, the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible. Give us one strand of evidence that would say that this may be actually reasonable, so I should take it seriously. Let's give us one, and then I'm going to jump to one other thing from that. Okay, so so I think in order for me to make a decision about whether or not Christianity is the one's true train, true true strain of, of of theism, I'd have to trust another kind of form of evidence, because what we have in Scripture is an eyewitness record that's been locked into place for us by Luke, who either talked to the eyewitnesses, by Matthew and John, who claimed to be eyewitnesses, or by Mark, who according to Papias is writing the eyewitness account of Peter in Rome. Mm. Regardless, we have on an account of something that at some point someone claimed actually happened. So if we just stop and step back in the time, that means we're looking at a form of direct evidence, not a form of direct evidence that we can test in court today because we have no access to those witnesses. But it's a form we can still test given the template we use to test eyewitnesses. Now look, Jesus constantly said, if you don't believe in what I'm teaching you, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles I worked in front of you. He says this in John 10, for example. So a lot of this is about testing. Is the resurrection, for example, the most reasonable inference given the evidence of history is the, the fact that the resurrection occurred because there's lots of other ways to explain it right i can explain it any number of ways as a non-christian they're lying they were delusional they, they hallucinated it they they uh, were as an imposter you know i can i can think twin. of jesus of evil ways, twin right? yeah evil twin right <laughs> it turns out all of those thousands of ways boiled down into like six or five or six mm. large blocks of approaches that people have taken mm -hmm. to explain the resurrection my only question is, do those work? And if they don't work, if I, if I excluded every other possible suspect and only one suspect is left, why wouldn't I incline toward that one suspect? And what I've looked at is, you know, if you look at conspiracy theories or hallucination theories or swoon theories or whatever it is you want to look at, those have fatal flaws. That's why this nasty little pesky thing called Christianity is still around. Because the people who have tried to get rid of it using their empiricism or using whatever it is they're going to use have not been successful, even with other philosophers and evidentialists like me. The, the case can still, now by the way, if I was going to approach Mormonism this way, I would have a problem. Because I'm not going to be able to find any archaeological support for Mormonism, the actual internal support that I find in the scripture in which those, for example, those first century authors just happened to get right. The geography and the names of the people who actually lived in the first century in the very locations where they were writing about. Now, like for example, Joseph Smith, not knowing anything about the North American continent a thousand years before he lived, made all kinds of false assumptions about North American history, which we now know are untrue. 
Mm. So you cannot find any city mentioned in the Book of Mormon. You cannot find any evidence of any character mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Heck, last week, ISIS destroyed uh, a, a region which exposed, I think, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, there's, there's, we're constantly exposing more archaeology of the Old Testament to confirm the stories of the Old Testament. Even by accident, this ISIS uh, destruction last week exposed another ancient palace that comes right out of the Old Testament. Right. So I think that the idea is you've got lots of ways to either confirm or deny a claim. Mm. And if you use that, those approaches, and I'm describing, I don't want to take the whole podcast to describe this, but I get this in cold case Christianity. I think that those, every way we test an eyewitness, the gospel author has the test. Okay, so that's a we good strain. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Are you going to finish your thought? Well, you only have a certain. We have a certain criteria by which we have jurors test eyewitnesses, and that's the criteria I try to use in the book. And we can I can point my readers to the cold case Christianity for that, and of course the other ones that you've um, put together as well. Uh, now, just a side note: I have some Mormon listeners. Some of my Mormon friends are some of the most ethical and moral people I know. So hats off to you. I appreciate Absolutely. you for that. But the key question is: Is the person who had said that there are new revelations via the Book of Mormon actually telling us um, what's actually true? Which goes goes back to what you earlier. Uh, uh, propositions that you put forward. If I may, Jim, in some of your writings, you had indicated something I found to be very helpful in my study of religions. You talked about three criterias of determining the veracity or integrity of a leader. Um, can you talk a little bit about these three criteria and how you relate to them to you know, the cold case crimes? And specifically, like you mentioned, Joseph Smith or more, maybe Mormon Buddha or Jesus. And, and how do I, and helping me to navigate the, the religious waters uh, in there to help land on something solid. Let's talk about these three criteria if you can kind of summarize those. Well, which one, which one do you, I don't, don't want to uh, jump ahead of you. I know which one you want to talk about first. Give me one to start with and I'll, I'll jump in with you. Sure, sure. The three criteria I was talking about is um, the three main reasons you find for uh, uh, crimes such as uh, oh oh yeah yeah for sure uh, this is something that I would test it. by the way if you are financial. listening to us right now yeah you could you could use this to test uh, your your any leadership and where you, no matter who you were with what uh, what leadership you're under or if you are getting ready to step out as a leader these are the three areas that I think all of us are tempted in and as I started a church for example as a pastor mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to protect myself in these three areas, right? These are areas where people fall. And so and so I, I wanted to make sure as a leader that I was not... T- By the way, these are also the same three causes behind any murder. Mm. People do murders for these three reasons. People only do thefts or they only lie for these three reasons. Any sin you've ever committed as a human being, you only committed for one of these three reasons. And so I think that leaders have to, have to master these three areas of their lives. And the first, of course, is financial greed. A lot of crimes are done for financial greed. And as a leader, I have to take that equation out. If the reason why I'm doing this is because I think there is some financial gain in it, I'm probably doing it for the wrong reason. So I want to make sure as a pastor, for example, I, I, would always, I, I started a church that was, had no bills. I could do it for free. And I wanted to be able to do it for free to take that dimension out. There's no way I can abuse the money issue if there's no money in it. If every dime that we collect as a church, uh, I call this a free church. You know, so I, I took my garage, I blew it out, I put it in 50 chairs. I had a church of 50 for six years. And that church of 50 was uh, really an effective, I thought, voice in our community because every dime we raised, and I wanted our, our, um, our people to be delirious, cheerful givers, mm-hmm. we gave to causes, uh, the, the local causes that we thought needed help. Just didn't have the financial wherewithal to, to go forward. We all wanted to be able to supply that that, that money. We only need it 
we wanted to give it away. So 100% of tithes was given to charitable organizations, just not ours. The second thing, of course, is uh, you know relational or sexual lust. That is a dimension that also creates all kinds of bad behavior, and leaders have to protect themselves from those temptations. I mean, you get into a position where the opportunities are going to be there. You have to be the kind of person who already knows, who's already grounded in God's Word, already grounded in the character of Jesus, already grounded. And so I, one, of the, one simple precaution that leaders can take is to... Um, I did everything with my wife in my head. I mean, Susie and I did everything together. Even now as we're writing children's books, we do these things together. We travel together. We do all these things because we know that that's going to take that opportunity and temptation. is not. We're not going to allow it even to be seated. We're not going to allow it to even begin. And the last one, of course, is power, the pursuit of power. Powers, and these are all, by the way, in First John. I didn't learn about them in First John. I learned about them just working in criminal cases, but... But um, then I discovered in First John, I go, wait a minute, I've been doing this for 25 years, <laughs> and this, some dude with this, you know, thousands of years ago, it's irritating. So anyway, the point is that uh, the power is nothing you've got to protect yourself from. So we decided that the church would never be bigger than 50, and when it gets to 60, you plant another church. And by the way, you have no authority or leadership over that second church. That just goes, and they start another church on their own. And so you know that you are never going to be in a position of, of power greater than the 50-person church you've got today. So if you're chasing power, you've also taken that dimension now. And then so applying, applying these three... Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead, finish your point. Uh, uh, why just three? I've always grounded them, to be honest, and what I saw were, um, uh, you know, were... Um, the, the crimes that, that were motivated by the, the big three. I mean, that's really where, where it came from for and me. Now, look, there's another way of looking at this, right? I always talk about how you effectively then act as a leader. That's different. That's about plan and proximity and unintentionalness, right? But, but I mean, as far as the characters of a leader, they also can be twisted to be the characters of a criminal or the characters of an abuser. So these are the characteristics, these are the things that, that weigh on us, these are the temptations we face, and the ways that we can shine if we master these three areas. And if you were to take a look at the biggest uh, leaders in the uh, world, religious leaders in history, such as Buddha, maybe Moses and Jesus, of course, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, yes. and you were to compare the, um, uh, the characteristics of the leaders there, now, I know when you throw Buddha into the mix, you get into an interesting conundrum there because um, you know, power and wealth, of course, he denounced all these things as, as a, as a yes. leader. Buddha did. Um, and, of course, yes. uh, in other areas. But but when you start looking at people like Muhammad or Joseph Smith, could you touch on their, how would they yeah, uh, fare? It's, it's in actually, that? right, because I've got family, too. They're all LDS. i got yeah. six brothers and sisters who were raised Mormons. So I'm always you know, sensitive to the fact that, 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 that you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the Mormon family I have and friends that I have, and I spent a lot of time working in Salt Lake City and, and Mount Manti, Utah, and places in Utah, are without a doubt, I don't think they're just some of the nicest people you know. I think they outperform Christians consistently. I'll just say that right now. They always do. I mean, I, 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 if, if Christians would only behave as well as Mormons, I wonder how much difference we would have in our culture. Well, my Mormons so, tell me they are Christian. Well, there, there you go, right? The question becomes, well, they're Christian if, if, for example, in the same way that Muslims are Christians. Islam presents Jesus as an important figure that is born of a virgin, that has very many similarities with the Jesus that we accept as Christians. But the problem, of course, is that the Muslim Christian is not God incarnate. That And, and, and to be honest, either is the Mormon Jesus. He is a man who rose into Godhood through his good works. And by the way, any group 
that salvation is dependent upon their good works will probably outwork you. Mm. Think about that. If your if your salvation is dependent upon your and why is that offensive to God? Because whatever it is and whoever it is that saves you, that is your God. If you trust that Christ alone has the ability to save you, that Christ alone through His life you that you borrow by by accepting that atonement offer on the cross, that's a very different approach. How do I put it this way? Mormons believe that Jesus is a part of their salvation in the sense that Mormons are on the ground, God is in heaven, and Jesus comes down, and comes down and gives the Mormon believer a ladder. Without Jesus, no one gets to heaven. Without Jesus coming and doing that thing for you, it's all Jesus. Without Jesus, you have no ladder. But you climb that ladder on your own good works. That is not the Christian view of Jesus. In our view, Jesus drops a rappel line down and comes down and drags you up kicking and screaming because you could do nothing to climb your own ladder. Mm. That's we, It's all Jesus, all grace, all the power of God. And That's the difference between mm. these two worldviews. They it, think you can climb the ladder. Yeah, and isn't it fascinating, Jim? Like, for example, in Plato's Republic, you have the parable of the cave where the uh, leader or the head of the cave actually has to go in there and drag the prisoner out yes. into the sunlight. And this is echoed right. in all the pagan mythologies of the gospel in all of them uh, in, in shadow form. I find it to be just mesmerizing when I read about and that. And how unique it is. Now let's go back to these qualities characteristics. Yes, yes. Now, again, the fact that you might have, by the way, all these three things, sex, money, uh, uh, sex, money, and power, those three things are form all of motive. For, for crimes. So when I go into a crime scene and I see a dead person, I know I'm looking for somebody who benefited in the area of either sex, money, or power. Mm. That's who killed this guy. And so that's what we're looking for. Okay? So so I, I, it makes it very clear. That person in the end who I meet who is the real killer will have had a motive in one of those three areas. But you can have motive. We've all thought about these things. We've all had these ideas running in our heads. We don't act sometimes on our thinking, though. We, we know to restrain ourselves. Mm -hmm. so, so having motive by itself does not mean you are a crook or you are the murderer. No, you can have the motive to do a murder, but you just chose not to act on it. But when I investigated Joseph, for example, Joseph Smith, I discovered that he had deep motive in all three areas, right? I mean, he's written into his own scripture that the prophet will be supported by the members of the church. He, he never purchased anything of significance for the church or, or, or for himself with his own money. Even the, the book of Abraham scroll that he purchased in the 1840s was purchased with the money of the church. He started a bank in which he assured his his uh, fellow uh, his followers that their money would be secure. All went bankrupt. Several of people who invested in that bank ended up leaving the church as a result. So there was always a financial component that made uh, that doesn't mean that he's he was doing that. He was lying. Doesn't mean that that's really what was happening. But at least you knew that motive was there. So was the motive of sex. You know, he wasn't a person who only had one wife. He had over 30 wives. Wow. Many of uh, many of those, those were all uh, sealed with, 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 with uh, sexual interaction. So he had a, a, a form of theology, which is in Doctrines and Covenants, to support his polygamy, which was adopted even more robustly by Brigham Young afterwards. So you have this, this theology created, which allowed him then to have the kind of sexual life he wanted to have. And then finally, there's the power issue. And without not just being the leader of that church, but he at one time, uh, he had a bank. He had the largest standing army of Mormons. It was the largest standing army on the North American continent next to the American standing army. Uh, he ran for president. He had a, a council. He wanted to develop a kind of a theocratic kind of vision of government. This is somebody who had all three motives. Does not mean he's lying. But clearly, 
If you're looking at the authors of Scripture and asking yourself, what is the motive for Paul to lie to us? Or for Peter to lie to us? Is he getting girlfriends out of this? Is he getting money out of this? Is he, he couldn't even control or have the power to stop his own death. These folks were martyred for their claims. Mm. So to me, the, the comparison of these three areas of motive was pretty dramatic. When you look at who's making the claim on the Christian side versus who's making the claim over there. Fascinating. And for my Mormon friends and others who are in that, in that, uh, that part of the, that religion, I recommend you take a look at the research behind this, guys. Uh, research this. Find this out. Check out Mormon and non-Mormon sources to find out what, how, what Jim is saying and whether it's true. Um, of course, don't take well, Let me just throw one thing out, too. Let me just throw one thing out, too, just kind of appease that. I think you're right. I, I'm always very cons concerned about how Mormons take what I say because I know that it just sounds like anti-Mormon talk to a lot of these folks. But, but just so you know, when I first started this, I was a 35-year-old atheist, not interested in this, I'm not interested at all, and not biased really against it, just not interested. I thought it was so profoundly untrue. There was no point in even... I didn't have a, an emotional... Uh, um, uh, investment in the story of Peter Pan either. I thought these were both, both at, at works of fiction. There's no point in getting upset or all worked up over this, right? So I just stayed out of it. But when I started to become interested in maybe that God did exist, my Mormon family came to me immediately. And I, I, I examined the, the scripture, the, the Bible, and the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price simultaneously as a non-believer, praying and asking if there's a God Make yourself known to me. If there's a, I, I, or if there's not a God, I'll hear nothing. I, I was very open to either way. And, but when I started to get to a point where I thought, so this might be true, I started to ask, which of these two things is true? Because as a guy who's never opened Scripture, as a guy who has no background in Christianity and really no background in Mormonism, that's my half-brothers and sisters, my, my family, my cousins to me. I really had no way of knowing if either was true. But as I used that template, and I went through both simultaneously, that template will lead you to truth. It'll also uh, falsify what's untrue. So it helped me to falsify Mormonism. And so if you, and I did believe me, I wanted to know. The Mormon missionaries who spent eight weeks at my house asked me to pray about it. I had never prayed about anything. The first prayers I ever offered were really just in response to the missionaries asking me to pray. To see if this is what they said their system was, right? You pray and it'll confirm that it's true. Let me tell you what happened instead. I, I started. I was encouraged to read. I, I felt invigorated to read more, and I read more about Mormons, and more, I read more scripture. I got all the way to the book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, and realized that Joseph is lying. Hmm. Because we have the original book of Abraham, Papyrus. We know exactly what that thing said, and it's not what Joseph said it said. Hmm. And so I thought to myself, if there is a God who's answering prayer, He just led me to the answer. This can't be true. Hmm. And so I, I did, it's not as though I had a bias against Mormonism, or today do. I just have a bias against things that aren't true. Right, right, I got you. Okay, and and for my um, Muslim, my Muslim audience, I would recommend you also take a look at these three criteria. How would they fit into the life of the the, the Prophet of Islam, of Muhammad himself? And and for that, I, I would recommend the book that I use in my Islamic classes called "The Life of Muhammad," a translation by Ibn Hisag, uh, about the Surah Rasulullah, which talks about the actual life and uh, biography of Muhammad himself. And see, I recommend for yourself see how these three criteria would fit on his life. How would they work there with the issue of power, sex, and was it greed? And, and money. Money, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's start uh, landing this plane, Jim, um, in the interest of time. Okay. Um, so uh, as I'm searching in the area of truth and applying that for 
in my my research and uh, looking into things like ontology and epistemology and and grounding justification for what I believe as I move forward into that how would the role of prayer come into that because I have um at Oxford University, uh, Tim Mawson wrote an article called Praying to Stop Being an Atheist in the International Journal of Philosophy of Religion, uh, Volume mm -hmm. 64, where he argues that you can use prayer as one of the legs of research in trying to find truth. Would you? How would you incorporate prayer in that for okay. the seeker? Okay, so just so you know, um, I, I'm probably the worst person to ask this question, but I do have an opinion on it, and, I, and here's why I say that. Yeah. My, you know, a lot of us come to our Christian life uh, carrying the shadows and baggage of our non-Christian life before. Some of us became Christians when we were 15, so there's not a lot of baggage to carry. When you're 35 and you've been a cop for 10 years, yeah. you, you bring in a lot of stuff, okay? A lot of view of the world, uh, a lot of skepticism. Skepticism serves police officers very well. We are probably the most skeptical, cynical, glass-half-full people you're ever going to meet. And that's definitely what I was. And so for me, I was very much, uh, you know, um, okay, prayer, that's great. Um, but how would I ever know? First of all, I had no history of somebody who ever prayed. And no history of anybody knowing anybody who did. So I was always just skeptical of the practice. Also, I, I wondered, well, how do I know, how would I ever be able to know for sure if the effect I think I'm seeing two days from now was actually caused by that prayer when I can't really effectively eliminate all the other potential causes to be able to evaluate it properly. It's not like it's in a scientific laboratory, right? And also the people I knew who were sick and praying for healing were also getting, getting their chemotherapy. So how do I know that it wasn't the chemotherapy that did or a false diagnosis or any other you know, set of issues? And so that, uh, just to you know, that is always, I, I have struggled to even have the kind of prayer life I would like to have. As, as an evidentialist, that makes sense, I understand, yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it's a struggle for me. I, I want to be honest about that up front. But, Here's what I do think. I think that every case I've ever built is built cumulatively. So if you ask me, Jim, what's the one thing that convinces you God exists? Well, there isn't one thing. I've got to give you a set of ten. Because it's in the, it's in the, the, the company of the other nine that any one of these things makes sense. So if you had, uh, say you had a, a, a seven-piece case, and six pieces point to the same suspect, and the seventh piece is kind of questionable, you're not quite sure how to interpret it. You could interpret it in favor of the suspect, or you could interpret it as pointing to someone else. Well, you can allow the other six pieces to tell you how to interpret the seventh. If the other six pieces tell you that suspect did it, and this one here is kind of marginal, well, you know how to interpret it. You've got to interpret it in light of what you do know. Mm. So I think prayer works that way in the sense that, that it's part of a larger cumulative case. If all I had to trust that something was true, was that I prayed about it and it happened tomorrow, I think I'd be in a bad place. Okay. Now, on the other hand, if I know I've got 10 good reasons to believe that God is acting in my life, given the, the you know, philosophy, science, uh, direct evidence, indirect evidence, I can make a case for this, well, then when something happens, I can interpret it more, uh, more, more, more uh, um, reasonably, because I, I've actually got the context of the other five pieces are now telling me how to interpret the sixth piece. But I would be very hesitant because, like my Mormon family, it, everything comes down to what they believe is an answered prayer. Think about it. They read the Book of Mormon, and the key question is, pray about this. James tells us that anyone who lacks wisdom simply has to ask for it. That's a key verse from Mormons. They consistently go back to it. So they would say, all you have to do is, is pray about it. And then God will answer that prayer as to whether or not 
Joseph is a prophet of God, and the Book of Mormon is true. So, so most Mormons I know will tell you that is the thing, the single piece of evidence that inclined them to believe that Mormonism was true. Mm. And if that's the case, you can get in a lot. It's not part of a larger cumulative case. No, that's why we make large cumulative cases to avoid that kind of error. So I think that's how I would kind of position it. As long as it's part of a larger cumulative case, I think it has power. But when it's separating, that's all you have. By itself. Yeah, you can yeah. talk it to yourself too, as well. In that sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I know in the book of Jeremiah, um, God says, "If you seek me, you will find me." If you seek me with all your heart, and if there is a God and He is omnipotent, omnipotent and beneficent, I think the fact of the matter is, if we really do seek, I'm convinced we will find. Jim, I really appreciate you making the time and spending time with us today and of your busy schedule. Do you have any last words for us as we wrap this up? Well, I think what you just said is so powerful, right? So when you say, "Are you a seeker?" What you really mean is, do you have you put down your presuppositional biases against the existence of God? And so many times when I talk to people about this, it's not that there's not enough evidence for God's existence. It's that they don't want there to be enough evidence for God's existence. And that's the thing that divides, I think, separates those who seek from those who don't. Am I willing to see the stuff that's been there all along that I really have been denying? And that's what it comes down to. Are you sure that you have laid down your presuppositional bias against God. Usually it's in the form of some form of anti-supernaturalism, right? I don't believe in miracles, anything supernatural. Suspend that doubt for a second. Just suspend that doubt. Ask the who question along with the what, when, where, why, and how question. If you'll just do that and give yourself a chance to get an answer, you'll see that the who answer is so much more satisfying than the what answer. So that's what we want to help people do is to lay down their bias. And that answer, that who, has transformed my life. And I hope you right. have that to you as well. For Jim, and of course, I'm speaking for my brother Jim as well. Again, Jim, yeah. thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And thanks, brother. I appreciate it. It was awesome being with you. <laughs> you too, man. All right, bye-bye. Bye. This is Cal Dude again. Thanks for being with me. Once again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you did enjoy this podcast and you're getting something out of it, uh, it would mean a lot to me if you would leave some feedback on the iTunes website. Give us a review there. That'll help us reach more people and expand our audience and help me continue doing what I'm doing. If you're interested in keeping in touch, go ahead and subscribe on the Logically Faithful website. Give your email there. There's a free ebook called 10 Things Science Cannot Do, which is yours free just for signing up. And you'll be giving free updates uh, on the current events that we are going to be covering. Thanks again. Go change the world. One life at a time.